Arms and welcome, you're listening to the Sacred Footsteps podcast. Sacred Footsteps is an online publication and podcast devoted to alternative and spiritual travel, history and culture from a Muslim perspective. Join us while we talk to writers, historians, artists, as well as a whole host of other people about travel as a spiritual practice. Assalamualaikum, Zara here. Thank you for joining us. In this episode, Zarara and I talk to writer and Arabist Diana Dark. Diana is the author of several publications, including My House in Damascus and The Merchant of Syria. We discussed her latest book, Stealing from the Saracens, How Islamic Architecture Shaped Europe. Diana, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're really excited to have you on. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Before we talk about your book, could you begin by telling us a little about yourself? Uh, yes, by all means. Um, so I I was um, born in Wales and um, my mother is German and my father is English. So I was lucky enough as a child to have a lot of travel in Europe because we used to go and visit my grandparents in Germany um, and then, so I, I felt I was brought up very much in a sort of European culture. And then at university, I made the decision to switch to Arabic. And so uh, for the first time, because nobody else in my family had ever been east of Greece, for the first time, I, I felt I had my eyes opened to another whole world in the Middle East. And so I enjoyed Arabic so much as a language and a culture that I decided I wanted to have a career in it. And so basically, that's what I did. I started off working for the British government as an Arabic translator and interpreter, then moved into the commercial world for an, about a decade, um, also using my Arabic. And then gradually, I started writing as a hobby about, um, you know, the Middle East and Eastern Turkey, places I'd visited, and gradually the the, the hobby took over. And um, so I've actually written 17 different guidebooks on um, many parts of the Middle East. I've lived and worked, you know, in, in many Arab countries, but it was when I um, took the commission to write a guidebook to Syria that um, my interest really became much deeper because in the course of the researches for that book, which involved a lot of travel in Syria, I discovered it was possible to buy a house, um, uh, you know, uh, a historic house, a courtyard house in the old city of Damascus. And I thought, wow, that's unbelievable because I've always been so interested in um, early culture. That's why I studied Arabic in the first place, because I always thought of it as the birthplace of civilization. So, um, you know, I was able by miracles and helped by Syrian friends to buy this house in the old city and then embark on a very detailed restoration project um, that took three years with a whole team of Syrian craftsmen. And I learned so much and became so interested in all of that that I then went back into the academic world to do an MA in Islamic art and architecture at, um, at SOAS. And uh, even began a PhD, actually, on that subject as well. And so so just really over the course of my life, I've found myself getting deeper and deeper into Middle Eastern and Islamic culture. And I've been lucky enough to visit all these places, you know. So um, all the places I talk about in, in the book, I visited them so many times. They're so familiar to me. So um, I feel very lucky because, of course, these days, travel to places like that is so difficult. 
That's really fascinating. I was going to ask about your home in um, Damascus, because is that the, that you wrote a book about that, right? That's right. Yes. It's called My House in Damascus. Yes. And that project took you how long did you mention? Well, the restoration of the house, it took three years. So I, I bought the house in 2005 and it was finally completed, you know, towards the end of 2008. Wow. And are you still able to spend time there or are things more difficult well, to see the last, in recent years? Yeah, well, obviously, once um, once the war broke out in 2011, um, I was still, you know, spending quite a lot of time in Damascus at that at that point. Um, but as the war broke out and friends of mine started to lose their homes in the suburbs of, of Damascus with the bombing, um, I I came back to the UK and offered them to move into the house. So I had five refugee families actually living, sharing the house for for several years until um <clears throat> until basically um a greedy lawyer decided oh you know she's never coming back to this country now um because he he noticed that i was starting to write anti assad things in in the press and uh, so he thought he could steal the house from me and so he actually had all my friends arrested oh my um, goodness tried to say that i was a british terrorist um <laughs> And and uh, and that I had links with, you know, terrorist groups and all the rest of it uh, just on a pretext. I mean, this kind of thing is happening, sadly, all over Syria. People are just writing reports to the intelligence people, defaming people in order to be able to steal their houses. And, and so I was so angry about this that I managed to get back into Syria and challenge it um, and had, you know, the two most exciting weeks of my life, <laughs> quite dangerous at the height of the war in 2014. But again, with the help of Syrian friends, I did manage to get the house back. And it's, um, the publishers let me add two, two extra chapters onto the book explaining how I managed that. Um, and, yeah. and now the house is safely back in my hands. But I do now just have one family living there. Um, himself, a restoration architect, actually, he and his he and his family, you know, um, they, they live there. And they've been there now for five years. Well, I'm glad you were able to get the situation resolved. But yeah, that's... I look back at it and I think, how the hell did I do that? <laughs> yeah. I must have been crazy. But but I was very, very angry about it. And I was just thought, well, I'm not going to stand for that. I'm going to go back and challenge it. And, uh, you know, as I said, with the help of Syrian friends, um, you know, I was successful. And, and by not running away, basically, they kept they kept coming and sending soldiers to smash down the door, thinking I would run away. But it just made me more and more determined to stay and to challenge them. And they just, you know, because I was British, they didn't dare actually do anything to me. They didn't lay a finger on me. If they'd, if they'd been violent, I think it could have, you know, all been very different. But thankfully... Yeah. They, they they held back from that and it meant that I was able to stand up to them. If we move on to your book now, it's entitled Stealing from the Saracens. In case people are not already aware, what exactly does the word Saracens mean and where did it originate from? Well, uh, yes, the, the title has proved quite controversial because a lot of people have misunderstood it. They've They've assumed that it's a literal meaning you know when i've said stealing from the saracens people have been outraged and said oh how can you use a word like stealing and um always what i have to explain and i do explain this obviously in the introduction to the book is that it's the title has been chosen with great care because the word saracens comes from the arabic saraka to steal and so 
the, our word Saracens, well, the word that was used up until the sort of 17th century to refer to Arab Muslims in the West, um, means uh, thieves, people who stole. And so um, it struck me as a rather a rather interesting double irony, if you like, that we took things from people we called thieves. <laughs> so that's 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 the origin of the title. It's actually meant to be slightly funny. It's a double a double irony. I was actually going to ask you that was my next question. This double irony. Um, but we'll come back actually to the controversy that you've already mentioned when we talk about the reception of your book later, because I wanted to I wanted to talk about that. But the main focus of the book itself is this kind of this cultural exchange that took place over centuries that saw um, many Islamic and especially Syrian architectural traits and styles make their way into Europe um, or into European Gothic architecture, I should say. What were those major architectural traits that were borrowed? Yes, well, um, the book, as you said, it, it starts off um, explaining that historic Syria, as I call it, so not, not the modern amputated rump state of, of Syria as it is today, but historic Syria, which was basically included what 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 you know what's known as the Holy Land. So Jerusalem was part of Syria, um, you know, up and up until actually the First World War. Um, so uh, historic Syria is the origin of all um, all of the architectural traits that come to form Gothic architecture. So I, I start really with um, uh, looking at the dead cities of Syria, as they were called. Um, now, these are uh, a whole area uh, that still exists. 2,000 churches in, in uh, north um, northwest Syria, so sort of to the west of Aleppo, up in the hills. Uh, 2,000 churches dating from the 4th to the to the um, 7th centuries. So it's an incredible repository of early early church architecture, the first things we would recognize as churches. And um, that is the origin of the, the twin towers flanking a monumental entrance. Um, and so you can see that style evolving there. And so when then the earliest Muslim uh, dynasty, the Umayyads, came into Syria and uh, took, they absorbed the architecture that was already there. So they they absorbed and synthesized the earlier Christian Byzantine architecture. And so they took on this sort of twin tower thing. Um, they made the towers rounded, but they maintained the, the monumental entrance. Um, and they then also, and this was completely new, uh, what, what they introduced themselves were the beginnings of the pointed arch in the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, and indeed the trefoil arch, which becomes so important in Christian architecture and Gothic architecture, representing the Trinity, you know, the three arches. But, but that actually makes its first appearance in the Muslim shrine of the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And then that those styles, um, when the Umayyads uh, come to an end in 750, as the Abbasids take over, and they killed off the ruling family of the Umayyads. But one prince manages to escape, Abdurrahman, and makes his way all the way across North Africa and sets up the Umayyad dynasty in Spain. So if you like, he sets up Syria in Spain and recreates his homeland there and brings in all of those styles. Um, so the trefoil arch and the pointed arch um, appear in the, in the Cordoba Mesquita, then where Cordoba becomes his capital. And 
also by this stage the vaulting techniques, um, the, the knowledge of geometry that the Muslims were able to bring with them into Spain, the understanding of, of the, um, you know, the complicated ways in which you can support a domed ceiling, all of that knowledge was new to Europe. And again, in the Cordoba Mesquita, you have these astonishing vaulted ceilings, um, the like of which have never been seen in, in Europe and which have been investigated by, um, by Spanish architectural engineers and been pronounced to be, you know, the most magnificent examples of, of perfect geometry that they'd ever seen and have never needed structural repair in the whole thousand years of their existence. So, so these are the basic elements. So we've got the pointed arch, the trefoil arch, the vaulted ceilings, and then also the rose window. That's another um, Omeyyad invention that, that um, we first see in uh, Omeyyad palaces. Um, so the one I talk about a lot in the book is, is, is in what is today the occupied West Bank near, near Jericho. A palace called Khirbat al-Mafjar. And um, the very earliest rose window um, is found there with, with coloured glass in it to make decorated light. So, so these are the elements that, that will find their way in to, um, to France, basically, because France is where Gothic architecture began. I mean, back in those days, in, in the medieval times, nobody called it Gothic. It was known as the French style. The, the term Gothic only only came into use much later in the Renaissance. That's so interesting. So what? how did it enter Europe? Was it through Spain or did it find itself through other ways from north, maybe through the Crusades? What were the main reasons or I guess ways the Umayyad or the Muslim architecture kind of came into Europe? Well, um, Muslim Spain was the most important gateway into Europe, definitely, and and the earliest one. But also uh, Sicily was was a major um, a major gateway as well, through which the influences because the the Norman knights of um, you know Norman being French if you like um, you know they when they when they conquered Sicily and absorbed the existing Arab culture there they they created a sort of fusion of um, of uh, styles so where you get Roger the second the the Norman king. He builds his Capella Palatina. And the, when you look at the photographs of that, you've got Fatimid arches because he imported workmen from Fatimid Cairo to, to build these arches and then blended it with Byzantine mosaics. So you get this very beautiful and harmonious blending of cultures there. Um, and then, of course, those Norman knights bring back to France some of the skills um, that they've that they've learned. Um, Amalfi is another another one. Uh, the pointed arches um, are meant to have been imported also through through Amalfi in Italy because the merchants, Amalfi merchants, were trading with Cairo, and noticed the pointed arches on the Ibn Taloun Mosque in Cairo and liked it very much and decided they wanted to use that in their cathedral. So again, they imported the the workmen because. Because nobody in Europe had the skills to make these things at that time. So they wanted to, obviously, you want a proper job done. You don't want a botched job <laughs> to using workmen who don't have those skills. So you bring in the workmen. Um, and then uh, from Amalfi, the abbot of a very important Benedictine monastery visited Amalfi 
and saw the pointed arches and decided he liked them so much he wanted to build them in his monastery of Monte Cassino. And and then the abbot of Cluny, which is the sort of powerhouse, the head, headquarters of the Benedictines in France, visited Monte Cassino, saw their pointed arches and decided, right, I want those too. And so he, again, imported the labour, imported the materials. Um, and, uh, and by the way, the reason we know all this is because it was chronicled by the monks themselves, you know, the, the abbots asked the monks to chronicle the history. So, so they recorded exactly what they did and what their building projects were. So, so you know, it's all, it's all recorded by, by the monks themselves. Um, and of course, once Cluny had it, um, the pointed arches, it became all the rage. And, and then this coincided with Europe becoming incredibly rich from, from the uh, money from the Crusades, the, you know, booty and, and pillaged money <laughs> um, from the sack of Constantinople in, in the Fourth Crusade. Um, so suddenly there was a great deal of money and a sort of surge of new faith and, and all the architectural elements had been learnt and, and were fused together then to make, you know, the very first Gothic architecture, which which starts in um, just north of France, uh, so, sorry, just north of Paris in France, in uh, Saint-Denis, the, the Basilica of Saint-Denis, um, which then is, is recognised by all art historians as the very first Gothic style, which then gets copied all over France and sort of springs up you know, with bishops competing with each other, wanting a bigger and taller uh, Gothic cathedral, because they also realise that the pointed arch is stronger than the round arch that they'd been using, the Roman arch, up until that point. So the, the stronger pointed arch enables them to build taller and higher with bigger and bigger windows. And so then the stained glass starts to become a, a feature as well. And they, they import the raw materials for the glass from Syria, because Syria is the world leader in glass manufacture at that time, and the top glass comes from Syria. That's really interesting. So when you said it was chronicle, this is how we know some of the origins or stories of these. How was this received at the time? Were people aware that this was coming from, from Sicily, from Spain, from Cairo, or was it just assumed that it's this is this is organically born in in Christian and Christendom, and therefore we can use it um, in cathedrals. And I mentioned this because in your book, you talk about the Dome of the Rock, and how it was initially almost perceived as being a the Solomon's the Temple of Solomon. And of course, if that meant it was um, biblical in its roots, you can adopt it in designs across Europe. So some of these designs mistaken mistakenly assumed to be Christian in source, or people knew it was. Was Muslim or it was Syrian, and they had no issues with it. Well, and um, in the case of the Dome of the Rock, um, that is just a very interesting and really quite amusing um, mistaken a case of mistaken identity. There's quite a lot um, of mistaken identity and just sheer ignorance, actually, that that comes out in in the researches for the book. That I, it did make me laugh quite a few times. You know, mistaken identities of various saints who who get conflated. Um, uh, and and uh, uh, in, in the Dome of the Rock, the, the Templars, you know, whose name, Templar, they, they mistook the, the Dome of the Rock for the Temple of Solomon. So that's how they, you know, because they then st uh, styled themselves as the guardians of the Temple of Solomon and, and not, not realising at all that this was a Muslim shrine. <laughs> 
so so yes i mean the dome of the rock then occurs on their coins and and gets copied as a style um across uh across you know quite quite a number of um similar churches europe and um uh it, it it perpetuates that 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 mistake perpetuates right into the 16th century in fact later than that even i, I give the example in the book of that map of jerusalem the first pictorial map um that is ever produced and this is in the mid 1500s by a pilgrim um who's making his pilgrimage to to jerusalem and he draws as the center of the map the dome of the rock as if you know this is the the most important building in in Jerusalem, and so that perpetuates again the the myth that um, that that <laughs> uh, this 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 remarkable building that dominates Jerusalem is is something Christian, and uh, that actually also reminds me that um, at at the beginning when the Muslim conquest uh, of Syria and Jerusalem first began, um, the Christians themselves didn't actually recognize the Muslims as a separate new religion. They, they thought they were just another heretical sect of Christianity, of which there were many at the time. And there were lots of you know, conflicts within Christianity about which sect was the orthodox one. So there were a lot of things that were regarded as, as heretical. And um, it's interesting that in those early stages, they were not at all seen as um, uh, you know, as anything different in a new religion. And there's quite a, uh, an amusing example of um, a monk called the Venerable Bede, who is well known in, 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 in England as a taught. I mean, I remember being taught this in my history books about how important the Venerable Bede was, this sort of very important English monk. And yet um, what I read was that when he, um, in his own writings, the way in which he refers to the, the Saracens, as he called them, um, uh, <laughs> changed. So at the beginning, when they'd only um, conquered Damascus, he talks about them as a, you know, another Christian sect who are, you know, of no great importance. But then by the time they they conquer, they reach the Western Mediterranean, and and he, he sees that they're spreading uh, a lot more. He he becomes much more um, <laughs> much more critical of them and and calls them you know heathen unbelievers and whatever. So so the view the view changed, uh, but I think a lot of it was just frankly ignorance. I mean people just didn't think about it in in the way that they do now. And then and then I think later on in the nineteenth century. Um, and certainly now, there's definitely a tendency to try to not look at these, um, not look at these things. And I think in the Middle Ages at the time, uh, I don't think they thought about it. I don't think they realised they 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 had kind of appropriated, you know, after the Crusades, they felt that that was their territory anyway. Um, and so I think they did just assume that all these things were um, were Christian anyway. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's interesting because the Syrians or the Umayyads, if you look at them, I think you mentioned in your book as well, they also, as you said, absorbed the architecture and the culture in in that land. And they would use architects and designers and artists from the European Christian lands, whether it was Greeks um, or whoever. So for the Muslims, there wasn't really an issue to say these are the local tradesmen and, and craftsmen will use them. Um, and return in the same in the same way, the Europeans quite early on 
we're happy to have, for even in Spain, for example, after the the departure or the removal of the Muslims and the Arabs in South Spain, they were happy to use the the skills of these um, uh, of the Muslim who were left behind, um, just because they appreciated the the art and they knew what these people could do. So this trade or this 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 um, exchange of I guess skill wasn't really an issue, and it wasn't like you said they didn't really care, um, and and that seems to have somehow become a, a dividing factor more in more recent times where now it's a question of who owns what and what whose is what, um, but in that period it was it really wasn't an issue that's documented as this is this is the the dome comes from this place therefore we'll not use the dome, the minaret is from here we won't use it, and these amalgamations and mixtures right, of, for example the minaret boring from the the, um, the church tower and the dome coming from a different place didn't really have any place in history as a dividing thing, but now it does more and more. Um, and this is what I find really interesting because the book, Stealing from the Saracens, although if you look at it, you may think, okay, this book is just appeasing the Muslims to say, we've taken everything from the Muslims and this is just an apologist perspective. But of course, you cover quite extensively how the, the Arabs and the Muslims themselves were borrowing and being inspired by the civilizations that they had come in contact with. So there's a two-way exchange for sure, right? Oh, very much so, yes. No, no, really, really the book is is all about trying to show how much cultures historically um, do interweave on, on many levels, you know. Um, they influence each other in, in many ways. And um, I just think it's very important to acknowledge that and, and to understand it. And, and that's why it was actually the fire at Notre Dame that triggered me to write the book in the first place. Because um, when, you know, when, when Notre Dame caught fire and there was this great sort of outpouring of nationalistic grief, you know, saying, oh, our identity is going up in flames and this beautiful gothic cathedral that we we created you know I, I just watched it and i thought wait a minute you know why are you appropriating all of this stuff as if it's yours and your creation um you know you need to understand a little bit about the backstory of gothic so so i mean i'd known most of that you know for years for decades but i was a, a very surprised to see how little known it seemed to be in the wider public. So I thought, goodness, you know, it's as if this knowledge has somehow been forgotten or swept under the carpet. So so that's why I wanted to write the book, to remind people how interwoven all this stuff is. So has it been swept under the carpet? I asked that question because I am also a student of history and, and literature. So one thing I find when studying Persian literature, Arabic literature in the West is in the early days when it was coming into contact with the Latin world and was being translated, you originally would have footnotes to say this is taken from so-and-so uh, philosopher, and you would credit the Arab philosopher, for example. And then over time, maybe the side note, the footnotes became wiped, and they eventually became replaced or in, entirely erased from future versions of books or manuscripts in in Latin or, 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 or German or English. Did the same thing happen with with the with the history of, for example, of Notre Dame or ran, or the many cathedrals in Italy and Europe? Well, I mean all I can say is that um when uh, this last summer I was able, you know, when when there weren't lockdowns, I was able to travel in Europe quite extensively, actually, and revisit a lot of these Gothic cathedrals that, of course, I'd only really seen in my childhood. Um, 
And so going back to them and I and I and reading about them, you know, and I bought the little books that they sell in their souvenir shops and I read about them. And I was just struck time and again by the fact that there is simply no mention of any, you know, debt to I mean, it's it's all written in in quite a um you know a sort of cultural cultural appropriation kind of a way. There is no acknowledgement of where a lot of this stuff originated and and so i mean to my mind that's just an an unfortunate narrowing of knowledge really when when i think you need you know knowledge needs to be opened up and made much more wide for people to appreciate um the value of of multiculturalism and everything that we've benefited in multiculturalism that that um, it's so important, especially for younger generations, to to acknowledge this and to understand it, rather than to try to say, "Oh, this is this is just our culture. This is what we yeah. invented." So, Zara, if you don't mind, can I? I was yeah, going to bring go up uh, just to follow up. This is a perfect time to transition into you talking about uh, debt and 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 understanding and valuing who who you borrow inspiration from. In your book, you talk about Christopher Wren. So, Christopher Wren. Um, and Memar Sanan are probably my two favorite architects. So, and I was very happy to see in the book you mention them and you go through some of the old works of Christopher Wren and his inspirations. And you write that in his memoirs, he acknowledged the European debt to what he called the Saracen architecture at least 12 times. So there was some recognition. So can we maybe talk about Christopher Wren and, and, and maybe the Ottoman or Memar Sanan's influence um, on that? Yes, well, Christopher Wren is absolutely crucial and core to the book because and that's why again the word saracens the only reason the word saracens is in the title is because christopher wren wrote at the end of his life that what we call the gothic style should rightly be called the saracen style and um and that's why the cover of the book shows the inside of the dome of st paul's cathedral because christopher wren writes in his memoirs that uh he used Saracen vaulting in the Dome of St. Paul's. And he said, I used it because it was the best. And he, he draws diagrams explaining about the different types of vaulting and explains that the Saracen style, as he called it, because that was the language of his time in the 17th century, um, but he doesn't use it with any kind of edge at all. He's, you know, he, he's he's perfectly prepared to acknowledge that the Saracen style was the best. You know, he's an open-minded um, you know, poly polyglot person, you know, who's who wants to take knowledge, wants to take the best of knowledge from wherever it may come. And so he's not bothered whether it comes from, you know, east, west or wherever. He will simply look and learn and use the best of whatever is available to make the best possible building that he could. And, and when he built St. Paul's, he said architecture is for eternity. And he intends, you know, intended the, the the cathedral to stay there forever. And indeed, you know, I'm, <laughs> I suspect it will be there forever, barring some massive catastrophe. But um, and he did use Saracen vaulting, and um, and it's uh, it's very interesting to see uh, how he achieved that. Actually, if you visit St Paul's, yeah, you you will, and you go to their shop, um, you 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 can buy a poster which gives a cross-section of the dome. And, and this you can see very clearly there how he's used 
uh, a triple dome. So, so the, the dome has three separate layers. It's absolutely fascinating. It's all done through very clever use of geometry and cones. And he, he acknowledges that, um, you know, the, the Saracen style, as he called it, was excellent for its geometry. So um, I, I was curious then, because as you mentioned, Wren was so willing to borrow from Saracenic styles, but how was that received by his contemporaries, like other architects of the time? How did they view that? Um, well, as far as I can tell from, from the letters um, that that are available, um, he, he was a bit of a lone voice. Um, I don't think uh, many others agreed with him. There were a couple of French architects who had similar theories, but again, they were they were a bit sidelined by the majority. I mean, they they their ideas weren't really followed up. Um, there was there did seem to be a bit of an unwillingness to um, you know to acknowledge these these debts. Just so following on, maybe if you go back just before Ren. So if you look at Michelangelo and Marcelin. I would have never put them in the same sentence, and and you beautifully talk about how they were contemporaries, and how this is this is a this is an interesting story. How Michelangelo was apparently offered a job by the Ottomans, um, and and this idea that the Ottomans could even reach out to somebody like Michelangelo and and have him come in and design. Um, can we talk about maybe Michelangelo and what he knew of the Ottoman work, maybe Sinan's work? And I think you covered this quite well in the book, but just as a quick summary. Well, most of what I talk about in the book is to do with Sinan um, and and really the parallels between uh, Sinan and Wren. Um, I, I have a whole section on that because it struck me that um, there were definite parallels there. Um, that both men lived in, well into their in, into their ninety to be um, ninety, which was pretty exceptional at the time. They both served many masters. So uh, Sinan served under three sultans, and uh, Ren, I think, served you know several several monarchs. You know, came to power and came and went, and so they were they must have been pretty diplomatic to have remained the sort of main you know, well, in, in Wren's case, the royal architect, and in Sinan's case, you know, the court architect throughout that period. And um, it appears that Wren was able to get hold of drawings um, of some of the mosques that Sinan had built um, from travellers who, who had started to travel to Istanbul and, and to make sketches and to bring bring these sketches back. And so Wren would look at those and, um, again, definitely copied some elements there um, from the style of buttressing um, that he and Sinan seemed to have a similar approach. Of course, Sinan was almost a whole century earlier than Wren. So, um, uh, but it's very interesting to see how the two men thought quite in, in in a similar kind of way about the space and, and the way in which um, they they didn't want it to be visible how the dome was held up. They didn't want it to be obvious. So they tried to disguise the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the columns, if you like, they, 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 um, uh, they, they made them blend uh, because they wanted to achieve a sense of weightlessness in in the dome, um, they they both had viewing platforms um, high up. Um, they 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 both pursued that idea. Did Ren also have a 
vision of how to manage space, for example, the way Sunan did. Of course, the layout of a church or cathedral is very different to the layout of a, of a mosque, just the way the prayer works and the way the hierarchy is different in, in the church versus the mosque. For Sunan, for example, you probably know this, he, there was a certain mathematical way of understanding and working out the harmony and the and space from the courtyard outside to where you do ablations to coming into the mosque and that whole experience end to end and how you would see the, the mihrab and the imam leading the prayer to how you would leave the mosque after you're done. Was this kind of calculation, was this consideration important to the church, or the, to the cathedral that Ren took into his, his own designs? As far as as far as I know, I mean, it's very interesting that you should say that because it's something that um, started to strike me as I was doing the researches, and particularly um, from the uh, you know, it, it struck me particularly in the Cordoba Mesquita in in Spain um, after I read um, a, a very interesting article by a, um, a Spanish architect who'd done various mathematical analyses of the space and the way in which um, the columns were arranged so that wherever you were in the mosque, you could always um, still have a view through to the mihrab and the and the imam. Um, and that, that, again, this complete absence of, of hierarchy is sort of like a huge web um, in, in the building, this sort of sense of the infinite that you never know where the beginning or the end of the building is, which of course is the complete opposite of um, the typical church or cathedral, where where there is very much a sort of sense of hierarchy, and you come in at one end and you you move towards the important bit, and there's no doubt about where the important bit is, and only the important people are allowed to be up there around the altar, and then you know only the important people can sit in the front rows, and 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 so you know there's a um, only, only the choir and, and the other people officiating at the service are allowed to be up the front. And then all the masses, as it were, the, the sort of hoi polloi are all, you know, pushed right to the back. So th that, that sense of hierarchy is totally different, of course, in Christian architecture, but very, very striking, very strong indeed, I, I, I feel. And, and it does affect a lot of things. And what, what's unusual, actually, about St. Paul's, yes, all right, it has got a sort of long nave. But when you attend a service there, just an everyday service, it takes place under the dome, in a circle under the dome. Um, and that feels very different uh, when, uh, you know, completely different to sitting in, in a row, in these rows of um, hierarchical pews all facing the altar, when you're all sitting in a, in a circle under the under the dome around the the priest who's in the center it gives a very different and much more personal sort of feel to it actually which um um well personally i i i i prefer but it's quite rare to get that in in christian architecture yeah i think you mentioned in the book about the mesquita and cordoba and how although it's now been heavily um christianized with like with the icons and the layout has obviously changed have inserted the cathedral parts of it straight into the middle it's, you can still very much tell it's a mosque it's without even thinking too much about it. it just doesn't fit in with the rest of it and that's what i find interesting traveling across europe as well when you see these old mosques even in old ottoman lands converted into cathedrals and churches it's undeniable you can see because it's just a space works differently and that immediately tells you something is missing here or something isn't isn't what it seems mm. no exactly no very much so
Um, so Diana, before we wrap up, because you mentioned earlier that the title of the book has caused some controversy. Um, so I wanted to ask what the reception of the book itself has been like, because I have noticed that people who have had anything negative to say, it's all centered around the title of the book, which I found quite interesting because it kind of tells me that they probably haven't actually read it. Would no, you agree no, with that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> that is right. That um, yeah, the people who just kind of jump to conclusions from reading the title, they they just assume I'm I'm somehow bashing Christians, you know, <laughs> whereas I'm not doing that at all. You know, I'm 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 very much trying to show how how um, how interwoven that everything is. Um, and in fact, one of the things I'm proudest about in the book is um, the endorsement it gets on the back cover from from Rowan Williams, you know, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. So the head of the church himself, you know, uh, um, comp- really loved the book. And I mean, what he uh, I'll just read it to you, actually, because I've got it in front of me. He said, um, as exhilarating as it is learned, this splendid, il- splendidly illustrated book shows how our cultures including our religious cultures, interact and interweave in ways that challenge all kinds of assumptions we might make about our history. By studying our past, Dark poses essential questions about the possibility of a shared and humane civilization in the future. And I was so happy when I read that, what he wrote, you know, because I thought, right, you know, you really understand the book, you you know, you totally get it. And um, and then uh, actually on the positive reception, I mean, I was um, really pleased that it's been nominated three times for Book of the Year 2020 um, by by the BBC History magazine, by the Spectator, and by the New Statesman. So that's you know that's pretty good because when you look at those three publications, they're actually quite an interesting span. So you know the New Statesman is a sort of left wing. Spectator is right wing and the BBC History magazine is in the middle. So so from across the spectrum, if you like, it's been nominated as a as a book of the year for 2020. So that's 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 really, you know, really pleasing. I mean, I'm 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 delighted that it seems to have struck a chord and reached really quite a wide audience. And it's been translated, by the way, into Arabic and Turkish for sure, with um, possibly some other languages in the pipeline. I was going to say it's fascinating that The Spectator also celebrated it in that way. That says a lot. Um, (laughs) But I mean, so the the thing is, this kind of cultural exchange that you talk about, it to me, it just seems like such a beautiful thing. And it's such a natural and kind of obvious process. So why do you think it is that so many people kind of try to um, deny that this kind of exchange took place, especially considering individuals like Ren had no problem with that at all. And if we kind of, we esteem... individuals like him within society and yet we don't share his views like I find that quite confusing yes I I know I I agree I I think it's um it's just ignorance it's lack of education and unfortunately you know there's no denying that now in in the last 20 years or so you know everything Islamic has been contaminated by um you know terrorism everybody you know so many people in in the west they just you know they see the word islam and they they think oh terrorism you know any kind of attack oh it must be an islamic terrorist attack you know it's a, and so, so it's unfortunate that this does have the effect of building quite a sort of negative view of islam and, and again that's another reason i wanted to write the book to try to 
show people that, look, an awful lot of really positive and beautiful things came out of the Islamic world. And, and we, we, must, we must acknowledge that and not simply think about things like, you know, ISIS and all these beheadings and, you know, a completely uh, ridiculous image of Islam, which represents the tiniest, tiniest fraction, which is really nothing to do with the true Islam at all. Yeah, and just one final comment on that. I, I love what you just said. When I've traveled to south of Spain, and even when I travel within London, for example, if I go to the VNA or the British Museum now, they have a Islamic art exhibition. When I when I grew up looking at these exhibitions, I, I was just struck by how much how close Islam was in Europe. So if you just forget about the Ottomans and and the Mamluks. And and the inspirations in St. Paul's, because some of this may be difficult to decipher, and you talk about ignorance, a lot of the stuff is very close to home anyway. So Spain, for example, if you go to Spain, Alhambra is probably one of the most popular places in Europe visited by tourists. In Spain, I think it is a top destination. So when I went to Spain and I was walking around the Alhambra or, or Cordoba, and I would see tourists, assuming European, non-Muslim, and I just always was in awe and wonder that at this time, the Iraq war was happening, and this is before Syria kind of kicked off. And I was just struck that here I was looking at this very, very Muslim identity within Europe mainland, right? This isn't this isn't in some small island in Malta or Sicily. This is in mainland Europe. And here were people who were looking at it, and yet we couldn't, you know, shake them and say, These this is very European. This isn't that far off. This isn't this isn't just immediate stuff. This is part of European identity now. And and you're looking at it when you go to the British Museum and the VNA, and and I always just hoped that one day people could understand this isn't an alien thing. We're so tied and interwoven. It is European architecture. It is European history. So we don't always have to be mingling two cultures because in a way they're kind of they're kind of one, and they grew out of each other. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I I feel that too on on every visit that I do to the VNA and, and the British. Museum. I mean, I, I just look at the things, and 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 the, the more I look at them, the more I can see how how interlinked they all are. You know, I now every time I I look at a Gothic cathedral or or even you know um, a small Gothic church in a in a in a village somewhere in England. You know, I I look at it and I see behind it, if you like, I can see how 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 multi layered it is. You know, and 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 to me that that enriches my understanding and appreciation of it um, in, in, a, in a very real way. So, um, and a number of people actually have told me that reading the book has helped them to see European architecture with new eyes. And, and I think it's done that for me too, actually. I, I, I now look at buildings with, with new eyes as well. I was going to say on that point, because the section you have at the back where you've even helpfully kind of labelled the architecture traits on European buildings. Um, so people who are not kind of specialists or understand architectural terminology, even they can clearly understand what those traits are. So it, do, it really does help you see those buildings in a new light. Um, but Diana, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this entire conversation was so fascinating. Um, and I really recommend people um, look up the book as well. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been, it's been a, a great pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening. Find out more about Diana Dark's book in the show notes for this episode on sacredfootsteps.org. Find us everywhere on social media as Sacred Footsteps and on Twitter as S Footsteps. <laughs>